The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornoyer, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on January 24th, 2021, and I'm joined today by our producer, as always, by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, Adam. Hey, Dave. It's kind of cold out Are, here. What's going on with that? Yeah, it's uh, it's a little chilly. Um, the temperatures have dropped. We uh, I, I went for my first uh, uh, ski lesson with my son, my four-year-old son this morning, uh, and it was very cold, but we were very warm. And I can report that he is an incredible speed demon on the hill for his first time. So (laughs) watch out. (laughs) Will do. Uh, We are thrilled to be joined today by our guest today, uh, independent Senator from Alberta, Paula Simons. Welcome to the podcast, Paula. Well, I'm very excited because I don't think I've ever been cool enough to be on this podcast before. I I did Adam's podcast years ago where I came from inside a coffee mug, but I think this is the first time I've been on Dave Berta. So I'm very glad that, you know, at the age of 56, I am now sufficiently cool that I can (laughs) hang with the cool kids. Well, it is, it is, it is an absolute thrill to have you on. You mentioned, you mentioned a coffee mug. What was the, Adam had a podcast and a coffee mug? Well, I don't know. What, what, what did, what did you guys call that thing? It, it was called uh, the unknown studio. I don't oh, know if you yeah. remember this Dave. Like, I think it was, that was like nearly a decade ago now, Paul. I still have the mug. Awesome. That's great. It's limited edition. Wow. Well, I think I was a guest, but I never got a mug. So we'll have to talk about this after the after the podcast, Adam. <laughs> they, have, they have to be some perks to being 30 years older than all the rest of you. Oh, well. <laughs> we're, 20 we're, years we're, older than all the rest of you. <laughs> well, we're, well we're, we're, we're thrilled that you could join us today. Thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. I know Adam and I have been talking for uh, for quite a while about about, uh, about having you on. So we're, we're, glad that, uh, we're glad that you could join us today. So, Paula, um, how <laughs> you you've uh, you you were appointed to the Senate in uh, in 2018. Yeah, it would have been late 2018. So you had a good, uh, basically a good like full year of like normal being a senator before the COVID restrictions hit, before the pandemic has hit. Yeah. Um, what has it been like being a, a senator during the COVID pandemic? It's been very strange, and I have to say, my first year in the Senate, I guess it it, it it's. The thing about the Senate is that it's not like being elected to the House of Commons or the legislature or the city council where everybody starts all at the same time and you sort of learn together. When you're a senator, you get hired to join programming already in progress and you get thrown in the deep end. So I was sworn in along with uh, my pal, Patty Labacan Benson, at the end of 2018, the end of the first liberal government. And there was an incredibly heavy legislative agenda. And we worked and worked and worked and worked and worked flat out. And I thought, oh, wow, nobody ever told me senators had to work this hard. This is this is crazy. This is so intense. And then there was an election. Senate doesn't sit while there's an election. Then there was a minority government, and it took a very long time for the Trudeau government to recall the Senate. Then we sat for a couple of weeks, and then, boom, March 13th, uh, the Senate rose, and we didn't come back for a long time. There were emergency sittings over the summer, which were very frustrating for me because the only senators who were allowed to be there were ones who could drive in... uh, in their own vehicle. So you weren't allowed to come if you had to fly or take a train. And then they loosened those restrictions in the fall and people could could travel. And so I did 
fly to Ottawa a little bit, September, October, end of September, beginning of October. And then I just decided that that was not, it just didn't feel safe. And happily, uh, we eventually allowed senators to take part via video conference. So we now do our sessions where I'm sitting in my nice home office in Edmonton and I sit in my chair. We're not allowed to have coffee mugs or glasses of juice. We can't have anything that we wouldn't be allowed to have in the Senate. We have to dress up. One of the senators got in trouble for not wearing his tie. So even if we're not visible to anybody, we have to wear Senate clothes. Uh, and we, we do our Senate interventions online. But it has been, <clears throat> I mean, it's been very strange and I've been I've been working very, very hard to do outright outreach across Alberta to speak to people about the impact of COVID-19 on their municipalities, on their businesses, on their lives, and trying really hard to represent Alberta back to Ottawa. But it's tough to do from Westmount. So, so is the entire Senate meeting online, or are some senators? No, I mean, up, in, in Ottawa? I mean, up until now. Uh, the speaker, there's been a speaker, not always the speaker, but the speaker, the speaker pro tempore has, has been in the chamber and there've been a handful of senators. Um, we are now in the midst of discussions about moving the whole thing online. I think there's going to be some resistance to that. Uh, and I guess, you know, if you're in Ottawa anyway, uh, maybe it, it, it's just as simple to show up, but it puts, you know, it puts other people at risk. It puts, the Senate pages at risk. It puts the clerks and the translators and the transcribers and all of all of those folks at risk. And the risk is exacerbated by the fact that there is no mask rule in the Senate. Um, there are no mask rules on the floor of the Senate, nor are there in the House of Commons. And so there are a lot of people who just decline. I was going to say refuse, but I suppose decline is the more diplomatic word. Decline to wear masks. Um, and so long as people refuse to wear masks in the chamber, I think there's a pretty good argument for saying that we're putting people at undue risk that, that you know, the people, you know, when I went uh, myself in October and asked some of my colleagues who sat around me if they would consider please wearing their masks in the chamber, people said to me, uh, well, I feel, I feel safe. I feel comfortable without my mask. And I was like, well, bully for you. Um, but but, you know, you're sitting like literally within spitting distance of me and I would really much prefer that you wore a mask. Um, but it, it's a difficult sell. That's in, that's very interesting. I didn't I didn't realize that because I believe in, in Alberta and in the legislature, I've seen MLAs wear masks in the in the Alberta legislature. Well, well, I mean, some people are wearing masks in the Senate. Um, when I was there, I because because lots of because most people weren't, I wore this goofy N95 disposable <laughs> paper mask. And you know, there's there's video of me uh, speaking about one of the COVID uh, uh, emergency uh, financial support bills, and I'm wearing this big white paper mask on my face, and I look like Donald Duck. I mean, I look absurd, <laughs> but. You know, it. I would rather I would rather look ridiculous than get a potentially fatal disease. You know, balancing yeah. balancing things out. Um, uh, but you know, it's not just senators. My mom was very very ill in hospital over the summer, and and she died in August. Oh, and sorry. I was I was allowed to be in with her pretty much every day, and I was gobsmacked at how people in the hospital refuse to wear masks, the doctors and, and the nurses. And I, I finally went on Twitter and I said, you know, it's really funny my visiting my mom in the hospital. And I'm surprised that there's no mask rule in the hospital. And I think 48 hours later, they, 
they said that people in the hospital had to wear masks. But there, there is a peculiar psychology of privilege, and I don't think it's just politicians. I think that, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just psychologically, if you have enough position power, you don't think, it's not just that you don't think the rules apply to you, it's that you don't think you're vulnerable. And I don't know, I'm keenly aware of my vulnerability to infectious disease. Uh, call me call me prissy, but you know, I, I don't need to be persuaded to wear my mask. I, I embrace it. So in terms of the workload in the Senate, uh, like have, have you asked me about, yes, sorry. Have, have <laughs> things, have things slowed down. No, I mean, we could talk, we could talk, we could talk about masks. Um, uh, uh, when, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to think like in terms of like workload in the Senate, in terms of how, you know, wh whether the Senate will, I mean, I, presumably the Senate will eventually start meeting again in person if, if uh, you know when the when vaccines roll out and yeah. and yeah and we, absolutely we just I mean I, I can't wait to get back but I mean we're still doing our work I mean the bill before us right now that is top of mind for everybody in the Senate is C seven which is the extension to medical aid in dying and senators have been working very hard on that bill uh, I'll be speaking to it I hope in the next couple of weeks and I mean no bill can be passed without Senate approval so it's not like we've clocked off. Uh, people, people are still working hard. Uh, I serve on the Energy, Environment, and Natural Resources Committee. We have a, a bill before us uh, that we're going to be uh, studying next week about uh, offshore safety protocol, health and safety protocols for the Newfoundland offshore. Uh, I have an intervention. Uh, I'm trying to launch an inquiry in the Senate into the situation of NAV Canada, which runs air traffic control services across the country, and which is in an economic financial crisis because they get most of their revenues. Not they don't they don't charge airports for their services. They get their okay. revenue they get their revenues by putting fees on airplanes that transit through Canadian airspace. And there's so many flights that have been canceled, so many especially international polar flights that have been canceled, NAV Canada is in huge financial straits. And so I'm I've, I've trying to launch an investigation into new ways that we could find to sustain NAV Canada that don't involve shutting down air traffic control towers across the country. Uh, so that's really interesting. T to tell me a little bit more about, like, I, I, I'm not, I mean, I, I, I recognize NAV Canada exists because I see their logo when I go to the airport and, but I, I don't, are they a crown corporation or how does no, that? No, this is really, really interesting. NAV Canada was spun off. I mean, Canada, the federal government used to run air traffic control uh, services. And in the mid nineties, they sold the whole service to a private company, which is not a crown corporation. It is a private nonprofit company. Uh, that makes usually billions of dollars because they charge fee for service for every flight that transits through Canadian airspace. So, you know, if it's a WestJet flight from Victoria to Edmonton, they charge for that. But they also charge if you're Japan Airlines and you're flying from Tokyo to New York, or if you're flying from, uh, you know, Dubai to Seattle. And because the earth is round and it is faster to cut over the top of the pole, Canada sees tremendous amount of overflights and we charge a lot of money because we also charge by weight of the airplane. So large cargo and passenger planes, uh, NAV Canada charges a lot of money. NAV Canada also has the right to control the airspace over the entire Western half of the North Atlantic. So even if a plane doesn't technically cover fly over Canadian airspace, it may still have to pay a user fee to NAV Canada. 
So Nav Canada usually makes money hand over fist, so much money that sometimes it has to, because it's not supposed to make a profit, it ends up uh, returning money uh, as a rebate to the airlines. And so no one had ever questioned this as a financial model. I mean, it made great sense. It, it, it saved the Canadian taxpayer from paying for this. It meant air traffic control services in Canadian airports were basically offered to those airports for free. It was a great model until the plane stopped flying. And now Nav Canada is facing a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's looking at closing air traffic control towers in places like Fort McMurray and Whitehorse. Uh, it's talking about reducing other services at, at airports that don't have air traffic control towers, uh, maybe ending overnight services at some smaller uh, regional airports. And so this is, this is a big problem. It also has potential ripple effects for Gander, which is, of course, our come-from-away airport. And mm -hmm. if we can't keep Gander fully staffed, we may lose the right, in fact, to control air traffic over the Northwest Atlantic. So uh, it is a challenge to know what the government can do because this is a private company. But I'm trying to instigate an inquiry in the Senate, which was I was supposed to launch it in December. I mean, to say I'm having an inquiry, it doesn't mean like I'm having a royal commission and I'm going to travel across the country and interview witnesses. Uh, an inquiry in the Senate means basically I'm going to try to get other senators to make speeches about this and, and raise public awareness. So um, that's on my radar. So there are all kinds of projects that other senators are working on. I mean, one of the consequences of the new uh, appointment system, uh, which was adopted in 2015, is that this prime minister has appointed a lot of type A workaholic overachievers to the Senate. Um, <laughs> and we all got a little antsy during the pandemic. And so many of us have tried to come up with, you know, it, it's been a time for, for pet projects. Um, and you know, I mean, that sounds demeaning. I don't mean pet projects, but I mean, it's been a time for people to really pursue uh, issues that, that might not have gotten the usual attention that they would have done during a, a full-on sitting of the House of Commons in the Senate. So the, I mean, you mentioned the in the the ch big change that happened in 2015, the new appointment process. Uh, it it seemed right after that that the Senate kind of, I mean, I mean, it didn't necessarily blow up, but but this the the establishment of the Senate in terms of like the the yeah. political order of the Senate pretty much blew up. And you, yeah, and, I mean, and, it's it's one of the most radical government reforms in Canadian yeah. history, and it's really you know while we're talking about airplanes and radar, this one has really flown under the radar. I think a lot of people. I think, frankly, even a lot of people in the House of Commons don't understand what an extraordinary revolution has been happening uh, off camera in the Senate. So, so just just for our listeners who who aren't aware, in, in about 2015, <laughs> it would have been Justin Trudeau uh, basically ejected uh, all the Liberal senators from the Liberal yeah. Caucus, essentially, and said, "You're no longer Liberal senators, or you're no no longer part of the Liberal Parliamentary Caucus." So, yeah. some of them at that point decided that they would be, they would call themselves liberal senators. Some of them decided they'd be independents. And then there were all these different caucuses that that started to be, be created. And then some conservatives left the conservative caucuses and joined some of these. I know Doug Black is, is one of them, a prominent yeah, Scott one of them in Calgary, yeah. Scott Tannis. Um, yeah, so how did like how how does that work? Because I I think you're right in terms of it has really flown under the radar, and I mean I've I've paid attention to it kind of as much as I can because I'm a political nerd, um, but it seems incredibly fascinating just how uh, like the order of things is has has really yeah. been switched up, and I know a lot of conservatives will 
will, you know, criticize the change and say, oh, well, all those independent senators are just liberals and, you know, liberals calling themselves independents. But but I think there's something a lot deeper that's happened because you have had conservatives, like prominent conservatives, who've decided that they don't want to sit as conservative within the conservative caucus. Yep. And they've gone on and on, done sat as independent. So really that like the conservative party still has a caucus in the Senate. It's the only from what I understand, the only party in the House of Commons that also has a caucus in the Senate. That is, that is correct. So, yeah. I mean, this is how I explain it to grade nine social studies students. Once upon a time, the Senate was like a hockey game. There was a red team and a blue team. And the red team and the blue team uh, were sort of in constant uh, uh, competitive play. When Justin Trudeau became a liberal leader, when they were still the, he was the leader of the third party, yeah, he fired basically all the liberal senators, some of whom are still a little resentful because they'd been liberal since before Justin Trudeau was born, some of them. So uh, they had some hard feelings. And at first they were just a few independent senators, but because Stephen Harper had left so many empty seats and because senators retire and and some some senators, um, you know, uh, have to have to leave because of health reasons. Uh, the prime minister was able, once he became prime minister, to fill dozens and dozens of Senate seats with independent senators. So uh, when COVID, like when COVID first shut us down, um, things were were different than they are now. But right now, we have evolved to the point where we have four different caucus groupings in the Senate. We don't call them caucuses because a caucus implies a certain party discipline that, that we mm -hmm. don't have. So the four groups in the Senate are the independent senators group. I'm a member of that grouping. We're the largest group in the Senate. Some of the people in the independent senators group are former liberal senators. Some are former conservative senators. Uh, and most of us were independent appointments. And there are about four dozen of us. Uh, then there's the Canadian Senators Group, which is, I guess you call them, they're like small C conservatives, maybe more closely aligned with the old progressive conservative model. And they're made up of people who left the conservative party, some people who left the liberal caucus, some people who left the independent senators group. Uh, and they're led by Scott Tannis, who is a senator from the uh, from Southern Alberta. Mm -hmm. Then there's the progressive group, which is primarily made up of people who used to be liberal senators, plus some independents who crossed to sit with them. And then there are about 20 conservative senators left. The challenge of all this is that the rules of the Senate are still set up for the hockey game. So they're still set up to have a government and an opposition. And so the conservative senators have a tremendous amount of power out of all proportion to their size because the rules of the Senate are written to privilege Her Majesty's loyal opposition and to give the opposition all kinds of powers and rights that the other caucuses don't have. So this leads to some weird situations where you have the government negotiating with this little 20-person caucus. And meanwhile, the other you know 80-odd independent senators don't have the same kind of functional power because the rules are still set up for the old hockey game while the rest of us are trying to do free skating. So this is still very much a work in transition. You know, I, I like to say when Steve West uh, was the Minister of Energy back in the day and wanted to uh, deregulate electricity, and he like did it all at once, and he would say to people, you can't, you know, you can't jump a canyon in two jumps. Unfortunately, this is sort of what has happened in the Senate. We we tried to do this radical transformation, but in but in 
bite-sized steps. And as a result, we're left with these weird anachronisms where the conservative party um, still has all kinds of rights and privileges, even though there are only 20 of them left. So, I mean, basically 80% of the senators, 80% plus are independent of one kind and another. The challenge for us is to make sure that we're not being seen as carrying water for the Liberal Party, because we have to be just as tough on the bills in, in different ways than the Conservatives do. It's our job to hold every piece of government legislation up to scrutiny. It is not our job to rubber stamp bills. And the whole point of this Senate reform has been to empower individual senators to use their own judgment, their own research, their own analysis to decide you know, the pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses of legislation. So I certainly don't think it's my job to be an agent of the prime minister. It's my job to look at every piece of legislation through a critical nonpartisan lens and look for the strengths and weaknesses, to look for places to suggest amendments, uh, to decide which which bills I support and which bills I don't. So that, that's got to be, I, ma I imagine it's got to be frustrating at times for the government in terms of trying to shepherd these pieces of legislation oh, that yeah. it has to the House of Commons. So do, do you feel a lot of pressure or individuals, maybe not you specifically, but do you find individual senators feel pressure from the government? Like, is the prime minister's office or is this, you know, the, the government house leader uh, from the House of Commons? Like, is their office trying to, do, do they try to pressure or influence senators? No, it's subtler than that. Um, okay. I mean, there's a, there's a government liaison in the Senate who does the job that the government whip used to do. Okay. This is a really tough job because you don't have the powers of the whip. So Grant Mitchell. You don't actually have a whip. You like don't actually that. have a whip. Uh, so Grant Grant Mitchell had that very thankless task. Um, maybe one of the reasons he took early retirement, I don't know. Uh, but it was really tough for him because with bills like C-69 and C-48, uh, C-48 in particular almost didn't pass. And mm -hmm. yeah, I came under a lot of pressure. I came under a lot of pressure, but it was never, it was never from the, the prime minister's office. Never. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a pretty bright red line that people don't cross. There are channels. So uh, the current uh, government liaison, uh, I mean, the, the whip who's not a whip is my, is my pal, Patty Labacan Benson. Oh, uh, okay. Another Alberta so, senator. Another Alberta senator. So she's got you know, she's got a lot of power in the Senate, but it has to be persuasive. Um, mm -hmm. She can't she can't bully people. She can't say, well, you know, if you don't vote this way, you're not going to get to go on the next junket. She can't, you know, so her powers have to be ones of, you know, soft coercion. She can't, you know, she, she, she has no coercive powers. So she has to convince you on the merits to support or not support legislation. So you you mentioned Grant Mitchell a few minutes ago, um, uh, uh, senator from I think two thousand two or two thousand three. He was appointed. He previously served as MLA, uh, Edmonton McClung, yep. Edmonton Meadowlark, Liberal Party yep. leader. Yep. Longtime uh, Alberta, a recognizable name in Alberta politics. Yeah. Um, an another one of your colleagues from Alberta recently passed away, Elaine yeah, McCoy. Elaine McCoy. Very tragic. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are two vacancies in the Senate. Yes. Now, and there's currently a process where. And and you, in my understanding, you would have gone through this process where there's an, an application process yep. and then some sort of interview process that follows. There isn't actually an interview, and it's a, it's an intriguing process. What happens is, um, it is an open competition, and I think people need to understand this. This is not a patronage appointment anymore. Uh, so any Canadian over the age of thirty who owns four thousand dollars worth of real property that's still left over from the uh, from the BNA Act can apply to be a senator. There's an 
a, a panel of people who sort through the applications. It's meant to be an arm's length panel, although one might argue about the length of the arms. Um, and the panelists, there are three permanent panelists, one from Ontario, one from Quebec, and at the moment, one from Alberta. That's Melissa Blake, the former mayor of Fort McMurray. Okay. And then as the panel looks at each province, it adds experts from the province. So there's, you know, in, in the Alberta panel, there's a panelist from Calgary, a panelist from Edmonton, uh, and then Ontario, Quebec, and, and Alberta are the permanent people. So everybody's applications go in, uh, they're vetted, uh, and then you, you, know, you, answer, you have to write an essay about why you think we'd be a good senator, you have to answer some school testing questions. And I didn't get any kind of interview except for one that was a security interview right before the prime minister called me. I mean, I didn't know it was going to be right before the prime minister called me. I thought I was still on a short list. But, um, you know, then you have to answer all kinds of questions. You know, what is the birthplace of your husband's late stepfather? And, you know, do you have any, you know, any any criminal ties? They wanted to know if my daughter, my perfect, wonderful, brilliant daughter, you know, does she have any drug problems? Does she have any gambling problems? And I was like, no, no. She's a 4.0, you know. <laughs> so yeah, that, so they had they had those kinds of questions. So they want to make sure you're not a sleeper agent or open to blackmail. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's it is an interesting process. We have two seats in Alberta open now. I've been contacted by quite a lot of people uh, who had questions for me about how to apply and what they should do and what their strategy should be. I don't know how many of them actually went through the process. But I've spoken to some really remarkable Albertans who have applied. I'm not in any way part of the vetting process. Nobody has come to me and said, hey, what do you think about so-and-so? Um, I think they, they try to leave, again, a, 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 a big gap so that it's independent. But knowing as I do some of the people who've put their names forward, I'm really excited to see who our two new Senate colleagues from Alberta will be. They've got some great talent to pull from. Mm -hmm. And pr presumably that'll be in the near future. That, that, that well, it should be. Well. I mean, frankly, I think the prime minister has been remiss in this. I mean, I think there were 12 seats vacant before Christmas. Mm -hmm. Murray Sinclair from Manitoba is retiring at the end of this month. And then uh, Elaine, uh, Elaine died in December. Uh, and so I think that may bring us up to 14 vacancies. This is a minority government. I mean, it could theoretically fall at any time. And mm -hmm. I can't, you know, given what a tactical error it was for Stephen Harper to leave all those open Senate seats because he just assumed he'd be reelected and he wasn't. Um, it would be really boneheaded if this prime minister made the same mistake. Uh, I think he needs to, you know, get, get out there and start filling these vacancies. And not just because it's good politics for him. I mean, Alberta only gets six senators at the best mm -hmm. of times. I mean, we're woefully underrepresented in the Senate and we certainly can't go on having only four senators. That's not tenable. So this fall, Alberta is once again, the, the uh, Premier Jason Kenney announced once again that uh, Alberta is going to go through the motions and hold a Senate nominee election uh, to elect nominee nominees that will be presumably be submitted to the Prime Minister to uh, to be appointed to the Senate. Now, this is something that Alberta, I think this is the fourth fourth or fifth time we've had these types of Senate elections since or Senate nominee elections since 1989. And and I'm just I'm just curious, like as a as a senator who went through this new process, I mean, you're not a partisan appointment. You're not a longtime Liberal Party donor no, or Liberal Party 
uh, bag, bag, bag. I don't want to say bag, 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 bag lady is not the right. Is not the right. <laughs> no, no, that's, 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 it doesn't translate. It doesn't. It doesn't. No, it doesn't I, have, I have never written a check to any political party. <laughs> so, how, how do you feel as a as a, as a senator? Like, what, what about the position it puts you in, having gone through this new process? And then having these uh, these this Senate election, which we talked, I talked a little bit about this on our last episode with Jared Wesley. And I mean, I've always been critical of these Senate nominee elections. I mean, personally, I think that I, I agree with the idea that the Senate should be elected, or that the upper upper house should be elected. Um, but I don't necessarily think that the process that the provincial government, this kind of politicized process, is really getting really really getting alberta what what we would need to to get through that process but as 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 an appointed senator what, like what are your thoughts on it well senators should not be elected not just from alberta they should not be elected that is what would be the point of having an elected senate i mean what is the benefit of the senate what does the senate give us that the house of commons doesn't the senate gives us sober second thought and that derives from the fact that senators are not subject to the vagaries of political politics. The whole point of the upper house is to be apolitical in the sense of not being tied to election cycles, to be able to take the long view, to be able to make decisions that are in the long-term best interests of the country and not in the short-term best interests of any political party. We don't have to raise money. We don't have donors. We don't have to fund campaigns. That means we're not beholden to anybody. And we show deference to the elected House of Commons. They are elected and accountable directly to the people of Canada. They hold an electoral mandate. We don't. So we know our place, which is not to backseat drive every decision the government makes, but to always take the long view and to defend the Charter of Rights and Freedoms against populist incursion, to make sure that we're a bulwark against majority tyranny. So if you had an elected Senate, you would derive none of the benefits of the Senate, and you would have a House that was perpetually at loggerheads with an elected House of Commons. I mean, you wouldn't need it. Why would you bother to have a bicameral system if you just had two houses that derived their authority from the same genesis point? You don't need a Senate if it's elected. I mean, what, I mean, what is the function of an elected Senate? I mean, the, the only reason to have a Senate is because it does something different from the elected House of Commons. So A, I don't believe in an elected Senate, period. B, uh, up until 2012, Alberta electing nominees made some kind of political sense. But after Stephen Harper sought a reference to the Supreme Court of Canada, where he specifically asked about Senate elections, and the Supreme Court of Canada specifically said, you can't have Senate elections without a full-scale amendment of the BNA Act and the, and, and, and the 1982 uh, Act that you know, repatriated the Constitution. If you want to have elected senators, you have to have a, 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 a constitutional convention where you get the consent of seven provinces representing at least 50% of the population. And if you don't do that, you can't, I mean, the Supreme Court was very clear. It was a unanimous decision. You can't have Senate elections. So we didn't have any for, I mean, this is not something that Jim Prentice uh, pursued either, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, much less Rachel Notley. So now we're, we're going back to this exercise after the Supreme Court has already said that this is not this is not a viable model without full-scale Senate reform. So consider the timing of this election. It's going to happen 
I mean, Elaine, Elaine's death was untimely, but she was set to retire in March of this year anyway. So we always knew that seat would be vacant. And Grant Mitchell's seat is now vacant. So unless the prime minister really fumbles this, he will fill both those seats well before the October municipal election. At which point we will have a full complement of Alberta senators and Scott Tannis, Patty Labick, and Benson and I are all under 60. And retirement age for the Senate is 75. Um, Doug Black is in his early 60s, I think, or mid 60s. So he's also not retiring anytime particularly soon. So you will have two elected people who are be senators in waiting, waiting for the next Alberta Senate vacancy, which may not come for a decade. It's a long time to wait. Mm -hmm. So one might well ask the question, how much of this is meant to be an entirely symbolic political gesture? And how much of this is actually uh, meant to incite Senate reform? One might ask that question. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you how I, I answer that question. I think it's entirely, it's an entirely political process. It's a sim, it's a symbolic project pro, pro, uh, process in terms of of Alberta, Alberta Senate elections. I don't think it's, it's, uh, it, I don't think it, it, it is going to lead to meaning meaningful Senate reform, and it because it hasn't over the past, I mean, over the past thirty years since we had our first our first Senate nominee election, and it, it it's a, I mean, just the way it's structured, it's a political process that is meant to bolster uh, the political party, the major political party that contests it, which is the Conservative Party. Well, I mean, and the joke is that both Scott Tannis and Doug Black were elected as Conservative mm -hmm. senators, and they both quit the Conservative caucus. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, I happen to, you know, to honor the reasons for their actions. And I think Scott Tannis has done a very good thing by setting up the Canadian Senators Group. I, I think it's been a really important step towards uh, the uh, the evolution of Senate reform. I have a lot of, I have a lot of uh, I had a lot of time for Scott, but he was elected as a conservative. Doug Black was elected as a conservative. And, you know, guess what, Alberta? You don't actually have any conservative senators and you haven't had, you know, for, for you know, a year and a bit. So, so whatever you thought you were doing by electing conservative senators, that's, that's not how it ended up. Uh, you know, I mean, Ironically, Scott Tannis has been a huge champion of Senate reform, but not for the reasons he was elected. Uh, what's incumbent upon all of us is to demonstrate that we actually give you some value for your money. You know, if I don't have my nose out of joint about Jason Kenney's senator in waiting elections, I consider it actually in some strange way a favor because it means I have to demonstrate every single day to Albertans that I'm actually working for them, working in the interests of the province and the people of the province. Uh, if, you know, people may not always agree with the votes that I cast or the decisions that I make, but they need to know that I am working hard for their interests each and every day. And if I can't convince enough people that what I do adds value, if the Senate of Canada can't convince people that we're actually something more than, you know, a vestigial organ like the appendix. We have to do something more than, you know, occasionally get inflamed and sometimes explode. We actually have to help to digest legislation.
The Dave Bruna Podcast is brought to you by BGC Biggs. BGC Biggs, that's Boys and Girls Clubs, Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Edmonton and Area, is looking for volunteers like you. Families that have needed help need it now more than ever. And with BGC Biggs, volunteers have the power to change the courses of young people's lives across our community during the pandemic and beyond. Together, we can ignite the hope that we all need right now. Dedicating your time to the life of a child or youth makes an impact that goes far beyond Zoom calls, video game battles, or tutoring sessions. Explore how you can get involved and watch our community change one life at a time. There's currently a need for virtual mentors, tutors, and in-person volunteers to be big brothers or sisters. Join BGC Bigs for a virtual coffee in one of their online open houses to learn more about volunteering and get more information at bgcbigs.ca or Google BGC Bigs. It's easier than you think. You can check them out at bgcbigs.ca slash volunteer. On December 12th, 1921, Edmontonians went to the polls and made history. At the time, Edmonton was just a tiny place on the map, comprised of just 59,000 people and still reeling from the devastating aftermath of a world war and a global pandemic. During that election, a woman the press described as a housewife received 3,341 votes and became our city's very first female councillor. Her name? Izena Ross. Join me, Stacey Brotzel, and my co-host Kim Ann Wilson on January 19th when we launch Searching for Izena, Unwomanly Stories of Female Leadership at Edmonton City Hall. We talked a lot about Ottawa. We talked a lot about the the Senate. Uh, you talked about the people of Alberta, and and I want to. I, I realize we, we've we've had you on for a while now, and I, and and the reason well, I wanted you, to, you wanted have to, to let me you, promote my podcast. I, I have this to let you promote is, your this podcast. Is why I'm here. This is, initially, I mean, this is a great. We could talk for hours about the Senate and Senate reform and Senate nominee nominee elections and provincial governments positioning themselves, provincial federal relations. Um, and, uh, but I, but I want to talk to you about, or I want to give you a chance to talk about your podcast series, because I think this is fascinating. And when you talk about, uh, you know, I mean, the, the people of Alberta, that's really what, what this podcast is about, Alberta Unbound, which, which you just launched the second season of just this past week. Now, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Alberta Unbound and what it is, why, and why you've done it? All right. Well, the I have to go back to the beginning and the first season of Alberta Unbound, which uh, we recorded early last March, right before COVID sort of slammed down. Um, and it was inspired by a couple of things. It was inspired by my visceral reaction to the Buffalo Declaration and the Wexit movement and all of the talk and the anger about you know, who's a real Albertan and Alberta separatism. And if you're a real Albertan, you should act this way. And, you know, if, if you don't vote for a certain party, you're obviously not a real Albertan. And, um, and so I was mad about that. And then I went for coffee with Jared Wesley. And he started talking to me about the research he was doing into Alberta identity and how Albertans see themselves and how Albertans define who a real Albertan is. And I thought, well, that's a jumping off point. So I put together a live panel discussion with Jared Wesley, with conservative MP Shannon Stubbs, with journalist Omar Mawalam, with Diana Steinhauer, who's uh, the head of Yellowhead Tribal College, mm -hmm. and uh, with Doug Griffiths, uh, who used to be a, a progressive conservative cabinet minister in Alberta. 
And the idea was for that panel of sparky, interesting people to have a public debate about Alberta identity. And we recorded it at the Arts Barns and we sold out the place and it was standing room only. And we served pierogies on sticks and mini donuts afterwards. And it seems like a blur now because- Back when we could gather with- Back when we could gather and eat finger food, you know? Um, so we put that out last year, we cut it up into five chunks and people really liked it. And I thought, okay, well, obviously, we can't have another live event this year. So what could we do instead? And over the course of the summer, as the Black Lives Matter uh, movements rolled out across North America, and as I saw all this racist backlash sparked by COVID-19, uh, you know, racist attacks on Chinese Canadians, Filipino Canadians, uh, South Asian Canadians, I thought, you know, I, I need to come at this again and in a different way. So I put together a roster of nine really remarkable people from across the province, from across the political spectrum, to talk about Alberta identity and what it really means to be an Albertan, because I'm so tired of one side of the political spectrum hogging all the bandwidth about, you know, beating their chest, saying, I am a real Albertan. I am, you know, these are the qualities mm -hmm. of a real Albertan. And I think to myself, really? Because my family's lived here for more than a hundred years and we're not anything like that. And I'm pretty sure we're real Albertans. And I'm equally tired of people in Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal who have their very stereotypical narrow ideas of what Albertans are. And I'm tired of a national media narrative uh, that plays in to division, that always looks for the, you know, the most outrageous Albertan to put on television to be the representative of Alberta. And it's not someone like you, and it's not someone like me, and it's not someone like Adam. It's always, you know, an Albertan from central casting. Uh, and so I thought, to heck with this. And I rounded up uh, nine really smart, funny, insightful people with very different perspectives um, to talk about what it was to be an Albertan in the wake of BLM and in the wake of COVID-19, well, not in the wake of COVID-19, in the midst of COVID-19. And to have really thoughtful discussions about how we define ourselves. What is the future of this province? Why do we let other people define us instead of taking back our own voice for ourselves? And I'm so pleased with the, with, you know, it, it's not... I was a CBC producer for years. It was my job to write questions for other people. And, you know, for people like Sheila Rogers and Eleanor Wachtel, it's way harder to actually do the interviews than <laughs> to, you know, so it's it's been a learning curve for me. Um, and really what what makes this series extraordinary uh, are are the people themselves, not 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 my questions, but their answers. Yeah, I have to say, I've really, I, I enjoyed the first season of Alberta Unbound, and I've listened to the first four, I think the first four episodes. I just oh, wow. Listened, I You're just a cleaner. Finished. Yeah, well, I was cleaning my house yesterday, so I thought, I'm going to just turn this on, and I'll be listening to it and cleaning, and it'll be the only time I'll have to, like, sit down, because I wouldn't have time just to sit down and listen. I have to be doing something. So yeah. I just finished the episode, I think I just finished the episode with Barry Morshida, who's the mayor of yeah. Brooks, which is fascinating. Brooks is a, I mean, a fascinating community, totally the the a non-stereotypical, yep. uh, you know, Southern Alberta town, you know, um, um, culturally diverse people from, you know, all around the world, the huge, I mean, I think it's a huge Sudanese community in, in Brooks where, where a, lot, a lot of people working at the meatpacking plants. Um, so just, just absolutely fascinating. But 
I, I guess what my, my question is, is what, what, what have you learned from this? Like, what, what, are you, what are your takeaways having done these interviews? Has it helped shape your view of Alberta or Albertans? You know, it's really interesting because one of the things that intrigued me about this is there's a, there's a pretty wide generational uh, spectrum in this from the youngest from the youngest interviewees to the the more um, seasoned ones. Uh, and you can really see how differently a, a younger generation, I mean, younger than me, younger than you, uh, see this province and their place in it. And so it's really, for me, that was, those were some of the most fascinating interviews with the very youngest contributors because stuff that is sort of hardwired into me about what it is to be an Albertan, they see it quite differently. And so, uh, you know, I'm thinking about my interview with Tommy Ajele, who uh, is the editor of Afros, Afros in the City, mm -hmm. um, talking about being a second generation, or I never know how you count. Her parents are immigrants from Nigeria, so she's Canadian born, but talking about the strange sort of disconnect and dislocation of what it is to be you know, that generation of Nigerian Canadian and not see yourself reflected in popular culture. Mm -hmm. uh, a really interesting interview with uh, Calgary entrepreneur Lourdes Juan, who's Filipino Canadian, about what a shock it was to the Filipino community to see the backlash of COVID 19 and to experience racism in a way that they just hadn't before. Uh, so, those were really interesting interviews. Um, but, you know, I guess probably one of the interviews that I found the most profound is one you haven't listened to yet. It, it concludes the season and it's my interview with Aaron Paquette, uh, who is an Edmonton city councilor, uh, a, a visual artist, uh, an award-winning, uh, young adult novelist. And, you know, we had a really good conversation about my own challenges, getting over my own white savior complex. You know, the time I spent as a young journalist when I was going to save Indigenous children uh, and, you know, confronting the fact that how different was I in my motivation than the people who ran the residential schools. And so that was a really, you know, Aaron is so thoughtful. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a really interesting conversation to have because I tend to be maybe analytical to a fault. And Aaron makes a really nuanced argument for the importance of adding heart to head when when doing governance. And I don't know, I, I guess I've had to listen to these interviews over and over and over again to, you know, to cut them and polish them. And after a while you think, oh my gosh, can I, can I listen? It's awful to listen to the sound of your own voice over and over to see I, I, how I many times I say, you know, uh, to hear myself um and awe through the questions. It's very humbling to listen to yourself back and go, oh my God, oh, I sound I, like an idiot. I, but, I just cringe when I have to listen to myself. And I oh, do just, it, to, just because it's a self-improvement thing, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's but terrible. It but I, I, I have listened to the interview with Aaron, I think the most. Mm -hmm. And every time I come away with a, with a different reflection. Mm -hmm. I, he, he's an incredible, he is an incredibly thoughtful person. I, I hosted a, uh, a panel discussion, um, about two years ago and there was a, a former NDP ML or an NDP MLA at the time. Um, there was Aaron Paquette, a city councilor. And there were, I think there were a couple of student leaders who were on the panel 
or I've been people from McEwen University. And I, I was just, I was very, I mean, I, I, I knew he was all, I knew he was a thoughtful person anyway, because I'd heard him speak at city council, but um, listening to him talk about his involvement in politics and why he got involved, what, you know, what led him to get involved and run for city council. Um, it really just, uh, I don't know, it, it, it ended the panel. Like he just, it was, I, I, I but in a good way, uh, yeah. uh, I asked well, him to get, I asked him to give concluding thoughts and he was the first up to give his concluding thoughts of the panel. And he just, he blew everybody away and none of the other panelists had anything to say because, because his comments were so thoughtful, no one had anything else to add. So we just ended it there, which was fantastic. But, but, it, but it, it was just, it just showed how, just demonstrated how powerful, um, how powerful, uh, um, um, how powerful he can be in terms of, of his thoughtfulness. Yeah. Well, and that's really because when I did the lineup, the, the the interviews you hear are not in the order in which they were recorded. I have, you know, you can listen to them in any order you want. To me, there's a thematic flow line that goes from one to the other, but it's probably mostly in my head. But uh, Ame Trinalia, uh, who, who's who's uh, the producer and the editor of of the series, um, he's my, he's my Adam. Um, we both knew right away. Okay, we have to, we have to end with Aaron. That's that's the finale. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. So, so will there be a season three of? Uh, oh yes, oh yes. Ame and I, you know, um, it's it's a function of of my my baseline ADHD that I need a new thing to do. And as you know, while Ame was still editing, I was like, Ooh, so these are the people I want to do next. Uh, I have two ideas in my head, one of which I'm going to keep a secret for now. And the other one, you have to tell me if you think this is crazy. I am far from fluently bilingual, but I've been working very, very hard on my French. Oh, and I want, great. I want to do a season in French where I talk to Franco-Albertans about Franco-Albertan identity and the diversity of Franco-Albertan identity, because I think for many people in Montreal or Moncton or Ottawa, it would come as a shock to see how multicultural Edmonton's Francophone community is. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought that would be a really cool thing to try to do to show francophones outside of Alberta, the vibrancy and the the revenance, I guess, of uh, of the francophone community here. Et si tu veux, peut-être, je je peux faire un interview avec avec toi, Monsieur oh. Conrayer, en français. Ça <laughs> oui, marche. Oui, oui. Je, je, je pense que je dois pratiquer mon français un peu. Uh, <laughs> moi aussi, c'est absolument nécessaire pour moi de pratiquer tout le temps. Uh, so I thought, and I thought maybe if I did it as a panel discussion, then the yeah. panelists could sort of talk amongst themselves and perhaps I wouldn't have to carry the whole thing. <laughs> um, so well, yes, I, think I, so I, I have think big ambitions to do one in French. I think that's fascinating. I, th I think that'd be excellent. I come from a very large Franco-Albertan family and I grew up speaking French and English at the same time. And I have to say my, my French is is passable but like woefully uh inadequate compared to most of my most of my cousins who are younger than me and uh, and my and my aunts and uncles i can get i can definitely get along and i can i can pass a conversation in french but uh the the idea of doing uh, a, a full interview in french just feels so daunting but i would say i've been using the app duo um which is, is like a, a, a language app and i think i'm like on like a hundred day streak now i've been doing little french lessons every single day and i found that it's it's really helped in terms of just refreshing and reminding myself of of you know a language that 20 years ago i could speak or even 15 years ago speak at a you know drop of a hat i could get go into a conversation in french well i mean for me 
you know, I've, I've, I've been doing French classes. I've been trying to speak French as much as possible. I gave an interview to Radio Canada in French yesterday, um, which is always a challenge. I get them to pre-tape just in case I, I walk myself off the edge of a cliff. Um, but it, it's always embarrassing to me that I'm not more fluent than, than I am because, you know, when, when you're in the Senate, um, I mean, that's the thing. It's easy in Alberta sometimes to forget that this is a bilingual country. And in Ottawa, mm -hmm. you can't forget that fact. And so, you know, I'm constantly sort of running up against the fact that my French is not good enough. Mm -hmm. Well, well, well uh, uh, I wish you luck. And uh, if you need any help, I will provide, uh, you know, as as much as as much as they can, no, because um, I mean I, I I'm sort of hearing a panel where I'd have people who are obviously sort of the, the, the Pirlen Franco Albertin, the people yeah. with the really you know racine profonde, the deep roots here, but also you know somebody who came here from Senegal, somebody who came here from Haiti, Absolutely. somebody yeah. you know maybe who came here from from Belgium or France to talk about the complexities of the francophone community here, because that is the one thing that our previous two seasons of Alberta Unbound have not really engaged with those deep Francophone roots yeah. in, in this community. Um, and I think they would come as a surprise to a lot of people from outside of Alberta. And really that's what I want to do with Alberta Unbound is provoke and challenge people in Alberta, but also to try and shake things up uh, for people on Parliament Hill to understand that Alberta is not what you think it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, when, when I was, when I was speaking of Alberta, not, not being what you think it is, not being what I thought it was when I was growing up, I grew up in a small town called Morinville, just North of Edmonton. Morinville, it's, it's, it's a community of, it was a, started as a Francophone community. My, my first, my, my family moved there in the 1890s when it was, uh, they were the, the Telliers, they moved there. And then the Cordonniers came uh, later on through the United States um, in the, in the early, early 20th century. Um, but when I was growing up and like, it was Mournville was it, now it's basically a suburb of the city of Edmonton. It's a commuter community for the, yeah. for the city of Edmonton. Um, it was more of a small town when I was growing up, there was still a tractor dealership. There was only about three or 4,000 people living there. I think it's now there's more than 10,000. Um, but because of the, 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 the origins of the people who initially, who initially the origins of the, pardon me, the Europeans who initially settled that area, a lot of, a lot of Catholic French, a lot of Catholic Germans, so a lot of the the lot of the old 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 names were French or German. Uh, it wasn't until I was a teenager that I actually realized that like there were a lot of Ukrainians in Alberta because there weren't a lot of Ukrainians where I grew up. So <laughs> so the, so I didn't. I mean, of course, I knew what pierogies were. I I I you know I I'd heard of shumka, um, but I didn't really know there were a lot of Ukraine like that. It was a, there was a huge prominent Ukrainian community until I was a teenager, which is embarrassing to say. But I mean, I really grew up in my own little. I mean, as we all do, we grew up in our own little worlds and small town where, you know, all the the family names are the longtime family names are French or German, and uh, and of course, why would I why would I know any different at that point? Yeah, no, I mean, one could put together a fun panel of of prominent Albertans who are from Mournville. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I could do, do you and Marty Chan and Ritu Kular from the Alberta Court That's of Appeal, right. who was Randy Boisseau. Yeah, you know, there's a whole um, for Mournville. I think has contributed to to Edmonton and Alberta culture all out of proportion to it. <laughs> it, must, it must be something in the water there or something. But, uh, here's that. Uh, but no, you know. I mean, because I, I think, you know, the, this this all comes back to what I'm talking about is that there, there are these certain narratives about Alberta. You know, Jared Wesley likes to talk about Joe with his truck. Yeah. And this is not 
this is not a unidimensional place. And, I, you know, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the land of the flat people. The land of the flat people. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, we, this is a complicated place. Albertans are complicated people. And I think that, you know, if you just look at the politics of the last 30 days in Alberta, mm -hmm. um, Albertans, Albertans do not speak with one voice. Mm -hmm. We have, we have many voices and it's a, it's a choir and we need to hear from all the voices in the choir. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and I think that's uh, I mean one one of the reasons why I'm 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 quite glad that you uh, you know you initially launched the Alberta Unbound series and you've just launched season two and I I encourage all of our listeners to go check it out. Can they just can they find it wherever they download podcasts? Yeah, or? I mean I think you know the first the first little with the first season took us a while to get everywhere, but I think yeah. we're on Amazon, we're on iHeartRadio, we're on you know Apple, Google, Spot Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, Ame in my office is super excited about Spotify. So that's, Excellent. That's, that's where that's where the that's where the young listeners are. <laughs> well, we'll definitely okay. we'll put a link in our show notes to make sure that our listeners can can check it out. Well, thank you. I I appreciate that because it's you know it was sort of my uh, uh, my my project to get me through uh, sort of December January. We got them all packaged up, and it gave me something positive to focus on. It's you know it's. It has been a tough year for everybody. Yeah. It is this has been this has been so hard. I I do a lot of school visits on video and I think, you know, I spoke to a grade 12 class at Birch Church High School in Airdrie last week. And I just thought, you know, this started when they were in grade 11. It's going to go right through their graduation. I mean, mm -hmm. this has been so tough on families. It's been so tough on schools. It's been so tough on everybody and i think after almost a year of this we've almost normalized it now mm -hmm. and i think sometimes we have to stop and remember what courage and what patience it has taken us to get to this point mm -hmm. and uh you know i think i think when people were called upon to act not everybody acted all at once, but I think on balance, it's really been quite a remarkable testament to the, I don't know, to the endurance of the human spirit around here. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, de I definitely agree. And uh, I mean, it has been a, it has been a very, a very strange time and a very strange year. I mean, as a, as a, a parent with, with, uh, with two young kids and thankfully neither of them are in school at this point, but that just means that they're, they're, they're at home instead of going to preschool or, or any kind of, any kind yeah. of childcare while, while I'm, while I'm working from home, which is, uh, is, uh, leaves, leaves, leaves my, both myself and my wife with a, with a, a handful every day. So. Yeah, no, I just have my husband and my dog. Um, so far my husband has managed to walk while in his house coat into two different zoom conferences i was having with reasonably <laughs> important people uh you know here's, here's the president of the university of alberta oh yeah and here's my husband in his in his underwear hi well, there's um, gonna be some sort of senate bloopers reel after this well, no, you know and the senate's very fierce about this because they do not want anything to disturb the you know the uh elegance and then uh you know uh, serious high seriousness of the Senate. So when I'm sitting in here during my Senate things, they told us like no interruptions, no dogs, no grandchildren, no children, no nothing. So I have to lock the door. Uh, and then sometimes both my husband and my dog forget that mama is in the Senate. <laughs> you, know, you can't, you, you, 
I, it's hard enough to explain to the husbands for the dog. It's um, it's impossible to understand oh, yeah. why if I'm in the house, yeah. um, she can't come into the bedroom since she sleeps in here, you know, at night anyway. Why, why if I locked her out of the master bedroom? Well, so these have been great times for host pets because uh, I mean, they, they've never they've never had this much attention. They'll be uh, it'll be a, a bad day or it'll be a regretful day when we're all able to go uh, go back to work and meet in yeah, person. No, when I start commuting back to Ottawa. Um, uh, I don't know. My husband might be quite happy to not have me underfoot 24 <laughs> seven, but I think the dog will be sad. Uh, well, I, I, I wish you luck in the remainder of the, uh, for as long as this goes on in the remainder of the zoom Senate uh, or whatever, whatever app use the, yeah. uh, the, the, no, the, we, the we, use, we in fact use zoom. Um, okay. We use zoom in the Senate and uh, it's, you know, I have to say, senators do not there are no millennial senators let's just okay. put it that way um there's there's some you know some gen x senators there are no millennial senators so the fact that we are actually able to make this work is to me a daily miracle that it is <laughs> that it is not a constant you know you know is my mic on am i on mute you know i can't get my camera to work uh the senate's uh uh information support team have been they have the patience of job dealing with <laughs> dealing with us all so oh that's great that's great well well thank you very much paula for joining us today um i really appreciate it is there anything else that before we before we sign off i, I know oh, i don't I think, want to take much we've, we've, time. we've we've talked a lot i guess i i just want to say that anybody who has questions about the senate anybody who needs me to justify my existence I, i'm on twitter i'm on facebook you just you know i have a youtube channel there are many many ways to reach me and I'm very happy to come to speak to high school classes and service clubs and universities and, and everyone to explain what we do and why we do it because I think the Senate quite enjoyed up until now being a fine and private place and quite enjoyed people not paying that much attention. But I think it's really important that as the Senate transitions into its new role that we be out there explaining what we do and why we do it and why it matters and how we make legislation better and how we represent our regions. And uh, I'm really conscious of the unique privilege I have to represent Alberta in the Senate of Canada. I want to do it to the best of my ability. And if you don't think I'm doing it to the best of the ability you'd like me to show, uh, don't ever hesitate to tell me. We'll we'll make sure to uh, to add your contact information, or at least put a link to your Twitter account on 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 the show notes. Thank you, Paula Simons, Senator Paula Simons, Independent Alberta Senator Paula Paula Simons, um, for joining us here on the Day Alberta Podcast. And thank you very much for the work you do for Albertans, uh, whether it be in in the Senate in Ottawa or in your office at home over Zoom, um, in in the uh, in the video Senate. Uh, we we really appreciate the work the work the work that you do. Uh, and uh, and really appreciate the chance to to get to talk to you today and talk talk a little bit about the work the work that you're doing. Merci bien, Monsieur Conroyer. Uh, tu es trop gentil. <laughs> and thanks thanks for everyone for listening. And thanks again to our producer Adam Rosenhart for making this podcast sound so great. The Dayberta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Send us your feedback and on uh, Twitter and Instagram at, at Dayberta or on the Dayberta Facebook page. Or you can just email us at podcast at daveberta.ca. And if you feel like leaving a review, we absolutely love reviews, especially those five-star reviews. And when you share it with your uh, your friends and family. 
Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you again in a few weeks.